Now we turn to the book of Colossians this morning, and we begin a series on Paul's epistle to the Colossians. Not Galatians, but Colossians. Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, we will read the first two verses. Will you bow with me in prayer? Gracious God and Father in heaven, we are thankful for this great epistle that exalts so the Lord Jesus, and we pray that we will exalt him in our lives. And we pray for the movement of your Holy Spirit within our hearts to draw us away from those things that displease you and unto those things that please you. We pray, Father, that we would be those in this world who live differently, who live according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we ask your blessing upon this series as we begin together to delve into the richness of the passages before us. But Heavenly Father, those who may be among us who do not know the Lord Jesus, we pray, O God, that you will draw them to the Lord Jesus through the sovereign operations of your Holy Spirit, through the effectual call. And these things we ask and pray in the name of Christ, the risen Lord. Amen. Colossians chapter 1, the first two verses. This is the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. Now, I have borrowed the title for today's sermon from a series of lectures given at Princeton by A.T. Robertson in 1926. I rarely hear those wonderful lectures referred to in literature, read about it, but uh, I've read them, and I think they're truly marvelous. And the title of his lectures was Paul and the Intellectuals. Now that's a good title for us this morning, because Paul is dealing with a heresy, strange and terrible. Its adherents claim to be superior both intellectually and spiritually to the simple but profound gospel of Jesus Christ preached by Paul and by others. And the Apostle Paul meets that heresy head on with the truth about who Jesus is and what he has done. These people, these heretics, did not use their intellectual observations or their supposed intellectual or spiritual insight to defend the gospel of grace, but rather to supplant it while calling it the gospel of grace. Most of us are familiar with the quote, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And in many ways, the church can be the most forgetful when it comes to the lessons that we should have learned once for all. And yet, as we come to the epistle to the Colossians, we see that many of the same sorts of issues that were dealt with by Paul the Apostle continue to rear their heads through the history of the church, and certainly today. So what we want to do this morning is to introduce the epistle of Colossians, and in the process to state some reasons that it's very applicable to the present climate in which we find ourselves as a church today. So let's begin by asking this question. Who is the author of Colossians? Who is the author of Colossians? Who wrote the book and why is that important? Of course, I mean the human author. The ultimate author is God himself. 
But his self-identity is found right here. He begins in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. It's Paul who wrote this epistle to the Colossians. Now I think that every time we go to an epistle of Paul, read the beginning of his letters, and read his name, that it should thrill us. It should thrill us to read Paul, an apostle. Remember his autobiography, especially as we see it in Philippians chapter 3. He was an Orthodox Jew. He was a zealous Pharisee. He was a learned rabbi. And he was a persecutor of the church. He hated Christ. He hated the church. And he did all that he could to destroy it. And then Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, showed himself to Saul of Tarsus. And Paul's life was never the same. He commissioned Paul as an apostle to the nations, and now he preaches Christ, the one Christ, the one biblical Christ, the one that he tried to destroy. This is the Christ that he now preaches that was crucified and raised from the dead. He proclaims the deity of Christ and the incarnation of the Son of God. And about his past in Philippians 3, he says, what things were gained to me Those I counted lost for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. So Saul of Tarsus, Paul, who was met on the Damascus road by the risen Christ, is the author of this epistle. He calls himself in verse 1, you'll note, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now in order to be an apostle in the specialized sense that Paul means it here, one must have had certain qualifications. What were those qualifications? Well, he must have been commissioned directly from the risen Christ. He must have been an eyewitness of the risen Christ. Uh, He must be specially endued with the Holy Spirit as God leads his church more deeply into truth. He must have a ministry that was confirmed by signs and wonders. And the ministry of the apostles was foundational for the church in her new covenant form. And all of those qualifications are true of Paul now who calls himself an apostle of Christ Jesus. The order, by the way, there is important, not Jesus Christ, but Christ Jesus. Paul did not know him as Jesus, then Christ. He knew him first as the exalted Lord, as Christ, and then acknowledged that Jesus is the Christ. And so the Apostle Paul now acknowledges that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And he is an apostle, you will notice in verse 1, by the will of God. So that Paul did not say, all right, I think I'll be converted and I'll become an apostle and I'll spend my time preaching and being shipwrecked and beaten up. The apostle Paul didn't come to that conclusion on his own. Paul did not call himself from darkness to light or into God's service as an apostle. How could he? It was all of grace from first to last, and that's still true of everyone who comes to faith in Jesus Christ. It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Now can you not see that this shows to us the wondrous riches of Christ already in the opening lines of Colossians? We see here Paul's encounter with the risen Christ, the ascended Christ, and his exalted will is being done. Paul is called by him. 
the fullness of revelation in this letter is from the effulgence of the risen Lord who sits upon his throne on high. And the Apostle Paul includes here in this greeting, Timothy, our brother. Look at verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, who is included not because he helped to write the letter, but as one who shares an interest in the church as does Paul. Now, we could spend all morning talking about the special relationship that Paul had with Timothy, but he includes this dear protege in his writing to the church. Now, you know, as we look at these opening lines, I don't know about you, but I simply cannot get over the fact, I've never been able to, and I never will, I cannot get over the fact that Saul of Tarsus saw the risen Lord, that this persecutor of the church was called into the kingdom of God's own dear son. The only explanation for the transformation of Saul of Tarsus is the objective bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead who showed himself to the persecutor of the church. Now, have you come to grips with that? What changed Paul? The only thing that could have changed Paul was the risen Christ who met him on the Damascus road. So we've answered the question, who is the author of this book? second question then we ask is, to whom was the book of Colossians written? And we find that in verse 2. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So he calls the believers there saints, you will notice in verse 2. Now all Christians are saints. Saints are not canonized Roman Catholics. Saints are all of God's people, those who are set apart, those who are under the value of the blood of Jesus Christ. The holiness, the being set apart, this holiness is the defining characteristic of the people of God, that you as a Christian, we as God's people are set apart to be used by the Lord as he will use us. And the basic idea of saint is consecration to God. And so every one of you who believes in the Lord Jesus is called by Paul a saint. But notice that he says in verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, faithful brothers. From God's perspective, we are saints From the believer's perspective, we are striving to live consistently with what it means to be a saint, a set-apart believer for Christ. You'll remember that one of John Bunyan's characters in The Pilgrim's Progress was faithful, who was faithful even unto death in Vanity Fair. We are called to be faithful in our walk in the Lord. Is that your name? Is the Lord who calls you saint, also able to say of you, you are faithful in the way in which you are attempting to live your Christian life. So he writes to the saints who are faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now we'll say a little more about Colossae in a few moments, but notice that those who are at Colossae are in Christ. Union with Christ is a major theme in Colossians, just as we saw in the book of Ephesians. It is a rich and multifaceted truth. 
fundamental to Paul's pastoral theology and also fundamental to your Christian life. Essentially what we say about it this morning is just this, that your identity is not in your performance, your identity is not in your work or in your appearance, your spouse or your friends or what others think of you, your identity is not in wealth or status or station in life, your identity is in Christ. You are infinitely rich in your union with Christ, no matter your status in the world. And so the Apostle Paul begins right out of the chute by emphasizing the union with Christ of the believers at Colossae. And to this Paul adds, you will note, the twofold blessing of the saints, which is grace and peace. Grace is God's sovereign, unmerited favor given to the ill-deserving. Is that you? The Greek speakers of the ancient world would write their greeting, karain, which means rejoice. Now look, the Apostle Paul in his letters is using essentially the form that was used in ancient letter writing. I don't know what they teach children in school now, but when I was a little boy I was taught how to write a letter. I was taught the proper form for writing a letter. And I think my first letter was a letter to my grandmother. And I think we still have it somewhere in those big block letters, you know. My handwriting hasn't improved, by the way, over the years. Well, the Apostle Paul uses those forms that were prevalent in his day when he writes a letter. The Greek speakers of the ancient world would write, Karain, rejoice. But in view of the coming of Christ, Paul the Apostle makes a change. He takes this common greeting, and in Christ he makes it something special indeed, and he uses the word charis, grace. Grace to you. May you know that you have been saved by sovereign free grace. May you know that you continue in your Christian life only by the grace of God. May you know that the grace of God, this special wonderful gift to the ill-deserving, that this grace of God remains with you always. And in addition to that, he says, peace. The order is important. He could not have said peace than grace, because peace is the result of grace. Though millions go into a Christless eternity, you will not, believer, because you have peace with God, and so the greeting reminds us, grace and peace. Now before we go on and look at more regarding the epistle this morning, I hope that you can see immediately something that's extremely important. And it is that the Christian life is church life. Do you see that? The Bible just doesn't know someone who calls himself a Christian and yet wants nothing to do with the people of God. It's worship and it's work. We are saints. We are together those who are faithful. We are those who together have been graced and who have been granted peace with God. This is something that belongs. He writes to a church and he says, you are in union with Christ. He wrote, wrote to a local congregation this letter to the Colossians. And so the Christian life is church life. You know, Mr. Valeni was saying in his class on Luke's Gospel this morning, he was speaking of the, the family of the Lord Jesus Christ and his relationship with them according to Luke. And he was pointing out that for the believer in Christ, our family is the church, the people of God. 
You may have family that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ. You love them, but your closest relationships are going to be with the people of God in the local body where the Lord has placed you. It's a wonderful thing. It really is true. Do you know the saying that water is thicker than blood? I'm talking about baptismal water. That is to say, those who know the Lord, you are our family. And so he greets them in this wonderful way as he begins. Simple greeting, isn't it? But will you not admit, very rich and very wonderful. So we've gone through these two verses, and we need to ask a third question. What was the occasion of the epistle? In other words, why did he write the book? What's he up to? What's his concern in writing the book? Well, the Apostle Paul writes to the Colossians. Paul had put the finishing touches on his letter to the Ephesians. But Tychicus carries from Rome where Paul is imprisoned. Remember, this is one of his prison epistles. And Tychicus carried from Rome not one letter but three. Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, and something even another. Colossians bears a very close relationship to Ephesians, by the way. It's sometimes called the twin epistle. Not an identical twin, but the very language is sometimes used from Ephesians into Colossians, and certainly similar ideas and concepts you will find there. So the Apostle Paul sends by Tychicus to the Colossians this letter. And though Paul probably visited Colossae on his second and third missionary journey, Acts actually does not specifically mention Colossae, Paul probably did not plant the church in Colossae. In chapter 2, verse 1, for example, it says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face probably indicating that he was not the founding pastor of the church. But in chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, we read about another individual. Just picking up in verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, and indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So this gentleman, Epaphras, is most likely the founding pastor of the church. So the Apostle Paul writes to them around 61 AD from his first Roman imprisonment because there's potentially disastrous heresy that is coming to expression in their midst. Now you might recall how in 1 Timothy 4, 7, the Apostle Paul indicates that there are some heresies you just don't deal with because they're so ridiculous they're going to fall under their own weight, don't waste time with them. But there are others that the Apostle Paul actively opposed because they were taking root in the church or because they were striking at the vitals of the system of doctrine contained within the Holy Scriptures. And by the way, Paul is spending his time praying for a church and writing to a church that was in a place of no great importance. In the 5th century B.C., Colossae had been a notable city. Xenophon references Colossae. 
Colossae had been a very notable place. It was located in the Lycus Valley, approximately 100 miles east of Ephesus, on the east-west trade route that emanated from Ephesus. The next time you're in my study, come and I'll show you on the map on the wall. I'll show you this trade route that leads from Ephesus all the way across Asia Minor to the Euphrates. By New Testament times, Colossae had dwindled. There was nothing great about it. It was not a glitzy place, but God cared about them. And Paul the Apostle wrote to them, and Paul also recognized that heresy can take root in the church from very small places with very small beginnings. So he's writing to Colossae because there's a heresy. Now what was the Colossian heresy that was the occasion for writing the epistle? Well, though full-blown Gnosticism does not develop until the second century, it is clear in the New Testament era that there already was at work certain viewpoints that would over time lead to that full-blown heresy. And we see Paul combating it in his epistles and John combating it in his gospel and letters. And as for Colossae, a reading of the letter makes clear at least these broad lines of heresy that were going on. You need to know what the heresy is if you're going to understand the book. First of all, the Apostle Paul recognized that the heretics in the Colossian church were promoting an exclusive spirit, an esoteric asceticism that made a caste system in the church Those who claim to have had superior experiences that they called knowledge, and those who did not. Knowledge here, of course, means mystical experiences for the initiated. And so there was a kind of caste system that was developing in the church, an exclusive spirit. Those who had this this knowledge that only the initiated had and those who didn't. And then there was, secondly, a mingling of philosophy and the Christian faith, unbiblical philosophy, untrue philosophy, in such a way that the Christian faith was being destroyed in their midst, or could be. It was a mingling of Jewish and pagan elements claiming to be Christianity, but that in fact destroyed the very basis of the Christian faith. And then thirdly, there were speculative views about creation that possibly even led to the worship of angels, as we will see in the book of Colossians. There also was a minimization or denial of the true deity and true humanity of Christ. So the very core of our faith, the incarnation of our Lord, God become man to save us, all of this was at stake in the Colossian heresy. Everything, in other words, that we have just focused on in the month of December through the Christmas season was at stake. Everything that we have looked at in the month of December was at stake. To put it another way, if this heresy took hold, it would always, in the Colossian church, be winter and never Christmas. You get the reference. But also there were certain ethical practices that developed in the Colossian church because ideas always have consequences for life. Ethical practices that led either to rigid rulemaking asceticism on the one hand 
or license leading to licentiousness on the other. So that was the Colossian heresy. There was an exclusive spirit, a mingling of unbiblical philosophy with the Christian faith, speculative views on creation and angels, a minimization or denial of the true deity or true humanity of Christ, and either an ethical practice that led to antinomianism or ethical practices that led to legalism. So we will see this and more as we make our way through the book. Well, that's the introduction to Colossians. That's the heresy that he is opposing in Colossae. So why don't we just stop? Well, because we can't. The fourth thing we need to do is to make some application to the present time. How how does this relate to where we are in our present circumstance in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the year in which we live, in the day in which we live, the place in which we find ourselves as Christians. Well, if we are right to see that the direction of heresy in the New Testament era led to full-blown Gnosticism of the second century, then we can immediately see application to our day and time. For first of all, if you're familiar with the work of Peter Jones, he has demonstrated that militant feminism a return to Eastern religions, so-called homosexual rights, deviant sexual viewpoints in general, nature worship, and political correctness are the result of a turning to paganism by our culture. In other words, as he points out, a turning to the Gnosticism of the second century in all of its essentials that's fine, that finds its beginnings in the New Testament era opposed by Paul and John and others. Let me put it bluntly. We are living as Christians in a recognizably pagan culture. We live today in the United States of America in an overwhelmingly pagan culture. And the lines to the Gnostic heresy of centuries ago are direct and clear. Well, that's the world. That's what we expect from the world. That's why the world needs evangelizing. The world is lost. The world lies in darkness. It needs the gospel. And we have only the weapons of the loving proclamation of the gospel, holy living and prayer, when it comes to our confrontation with this world system, this paganism of our day. But, and here's the point. Paul's concern is that the viewpoint of the world is influencing the church. And that is another matter. When worldly philosophy begins to influence the church, then we need to strike at the root of the problem and we need to understand that we are to live antithetically to the world. Come out from among them, touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, says the Lord. What concord has light with darkness? What the world thinks is one thing. The world lies in darkness. We expect the world to be the world. But the church must beware of being influenced by the world in her theology and worship and practice. And so Paul understands that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. And if you will read carefully the New Testament, 
you will see how utterly intolerant the New Testament is of false gospels and denials of the preeminence of Christ. And these things may not be handled with kid gloves. When these things are found influencing the church, we must put our boxing gloves on and stand up and fight. Or as it's put in the book of Jude, earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. Now that's what Paul is saying here. You expect this pagan world to be the pagan world. The problem in Colossae is all of these pagan philosophical viewpoints are influencing the church. And so he writes to the church and he says these things have no place in your thinking and no place in your behavior. Do you understand? That's why the book of Colossians, among other reasons, is important for us today. But let me give you another implication of what we will study in Colossians and why it's important. Because in the midst of all of this understanding of falsehood, the Apostle Paul exalts truth. And the next implication is the call of the Lord to the Christian to grow up. The book of Colossians calls upon you as a Christian just to grow up and to be mature about the things of God. In chapter 1 of Colossians, verses 28 and 29, if you'll note it, here's Paul's philosophy of ministry. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Him, speaking of Christ, Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this, for what? For the maturity of the saints. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That means that you may not throw your mind in the bushes when you come to worship, that you need to study your Bible, that you need to mature in the Christian faith, that the minister's task is to open the text so that you may not, remember Ephesians 4, so that you may not be tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of doctrine, so that you know that your feet are on solid ground. And I make no apologies in saying with Paul that the goal of my ministry is your maturity. That every one of you be presented mature in Christ. Because Paul understands and the epistle emphasizes that the pull from the old life can be incredibly strong. The pull to go back to false philosophies rather than the truth in Christ. The pull to go back to certain practices rather than practices that are the result of understanding the gospel. These things can be incredibly strong. So he says in chapter 2 verse 8, see to it. No one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So are you being influenced in your thinking and in your acting by those things that are not according to Christ? Paul's purpose in writing the letter is to say to you, if you are one of those A true believer, but tempted to go back. A true believer, but toying with ideas and attitudes and thoughts and actions that are contrary to the gospel. The Apostle Paul says, look, it's time for you to grow up. 
And everything that I'm writing and all of my ministry is to help you to be mature so that in the end you may be presented blameless before the Lord. It's fine if you're an infant Christian, but it's not right for infants to remain infants. And if you've been a Christian for years and years and years and you still don't understand the faith, and you still can't, can't articulate what the Bible teaches, you still can't understand what the Bible says about who Christ is and what he has done, it's time for you to mature. And so with all the love that I have in my heart for you as pastor, as I preach this, what I'm praying is that the Lord will grow us up together. And mature us in Christ. Because the pull from the old life is incredibly strong. But the gospel is greater. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And then this tremendous implication as we move into the study of Colossians together. This, this implication I think is of greatest importance. The overwhelming stress of the book of Colossians is on the person and work of Christ, who he is and what he has done. And the Apostle Paul would keep us focused throughout our Christian lives on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Read the magnificent description of who Christ is in chapter 1 beginning with verse 15. Look at it. Chapter 1, verse 15. This is what Paul says of Christ. I can hardly wait to get to it. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of God. Of his cross. Have you ever read anything so magnificent in all of your born days than this? Paul's point is that he wants you to know that Christ, the true Christ. Paul's point is that the answer to the false Christ of the Gnostic heretics is that Christ. That the answer to the false philosophies of the day and the false living of the day is this Christ about whom he speaks in Colossians. Paul points us to Christ who is himself the creator, who is God himself, who became incarnate. Paul's point is that he is worthy and your maturity will come as you know who he is and know him personally in the life of the body into which you have been called. Is that what you want? Do you want to know this Christ? Do you? Is this the Christ you long to know? Are you cold and indifferent to it this morning? Do you want to know this Christ, God, who became man, who died for sinners, who rose from the dead. Do you want to know this Christ? Is this the desire of your heart? 
That's what Colossians is all about. Stop playing church. Stop playing Christian. Be a Christian. Know this Christ. Christ who is preeminent. And let the preeminence of Christ rule and reign in your thoughts, your words, your deeds, your actions. The way in which you view the world, the way in which you analyze the philosophies of this age. This present evil age that is passing away. That you have a Christ-centered and eternal perspective. That's the point of the book of Colossians. So let me close with a lengthy closing, by the way. Let me close with a meditation on the beauty of this Christ. A beauty, the beauty. Jesus is altogether lovely. Let me close with a meditation on the beauty of this Christ using the words of the Puritan John Owen. And as you hear this meditation, I hope that you are as impressed with it as I have always been. And when you hear it, remember, this is the Christ that Paul preached. This is the Christ Paul realized that if the heretics had their way, would not be preached. This Christ would not be known. This Christ would not be loved. In effect, this Christ would be lost to us and we lost in consequence. And I say it once again to this congregation, it only takes one generation to lose the true preaching, believing, and living out of the gospel in a congregation. It only takes one generation. And if you sit there this morning and you're cold and indifferent to it, you're contributing to the demise of the gospel for the future generations of this church. If you are warm-hearted toward it and you long for this, then you are contributing to the preaching of the gospel and to the maintaining of the faith for your children and their children after them. What, which is true of you. So if the viewpoint of the heretics gains ground, Paul knows that it will leave sinners in despair. So here's Owen's meditation on Christ. Will you listen carefully? Christ is lovely in his person. In the all-sufficiency of his deity, gracious purity and holiness of his humanity, authority, and majesty, love, and power. Christ is lovely in his birth and incarnation, when he was rich for our sakes, becoming poor, taking part of flesh and blood because we partake of the same, being made of a woman, that for us he might be made under the law, even for our sakes." Lovely in the whole of his life, and the more than angelic holiness and obedience, which in the depth of poverty and persecution he exercised therein, doing good, receiving evil, blessing, and being cursed, reviled, reproached all his days. Christ is lovely in his death, yea, therein most lovely to sinners never more glorious and desirable than when he came broken, dead from the cross. Then had he carried all our sins into a land of forgetfulness. Then had he made peace and reconciliation for us. Then had he procured life and immortality for us. Christ is lovely 
and his whole employment and his great undertaking and his life, death, resurrection, ascension, being a mediator between God and us to recover the glory of God's justice and to save our souls, to bring us to an enjoyment of God who were set at such an infinite distance from him by sin. Christ is lovely in the glory and majesty wherewith he is crowned. Now he is set down at the right hand of the majesty on high, where though he be terrible to his enemies, yet he is full of mercy, love, and compassion towards his beloved ones. Christ is lovely in all those supplies of grace and consolations and all the dispensations of his Holy Spirit, whereof his saints are made partakers. He is lovely in all the tender care, power, and wisdom which he exercises in the protection, safeguarding, and delivery of his church and people in the midst of all the oppositions and persecutions whereunto they are exposed. Christ is lovely in all his ordinances and the whole of that spiritually glorious worship which he hath appointed for his people whereby they draw nigh and have communion with him and his Father. Christ is lovely and glorious in the vengeance he taketh and will finally execute upon the stubborn enemies of himself and his people. Christ. Christ is lovely in the pardon he hath purchased and doth dispense, in the reconciliation he has established, in the grace he communicates, in the consolation he administers, in the peace and joy he gives his saints, in his assured preservation of them, of us, unto glory. What shall I say? There is no end of his excellencies and desirableness. He is altogether lovely. This is our beloved This is our friend. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.